So now in November, I think we've seen the ports are running 24 seven, which is probably a hundred percent of their capacity. And it's not fast enough. And that's what, that's why I say, I don't know if it'll take all year to unravel this. It really depends on how fast that they can unload this backlog. Hello and welcome to TrackCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council from deep in the heart of Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio. Thank you for joining us. We hope you had a relaxing Thanksgiving holiday and welcome you back with our latest CRE Executive Roundtable with Chris Danis, Assistant Vice President of Economic Development and Real Estate at BNSF Railway, who breaks down the supply chain issues impacting our economy. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app, and follow us on social media for the latest from around the organization. We've put links to each of our handles in the show notes. Now, here's Chris Danos on our latest CRE Executive Roundtable, unwinding the supply chain disruption right here on TrackCast. Good morning. This is a CEO call for uh, November 17th, 2021. The year is kind of wrapping up, so it's unfortunately this will be our last one of the year. It's unfortunate because I actually enjoy these. I have the benefit of instead of having one call, I usually have two or three. The other two being in prep, one or two being in preparation, which is actually really fun for me. There is a subject which is really complex that we're all looking at, which is the um, the supply chain disruption, trying to understand, is it a supply issue? Is it a demand peak issue, spike issue? Is it a logistics issue? Is it all of the above in combinations? And it affects all of us. If it's Steve Lieberman, as retailers trying to get product, if it's um, Scott Rohrman trying to build a building and get materials shipped in, if it's somebody, um, who is uh, in the industrial space, building industrial, it really does affect all of us in a lot of different ways. And so really wanted to have a conversation about it. And because it's such a complex issue, complex thing, a lot of pieces of the puzzle, all the confluence of them, it's hard to do this without getting 15 people who all, one is supply, one is Freight, one is trucking, one is shipping, one is each of the pieces. Michelle Wheeler, can you please mute your phone? So, and welcome, Michelle. Um, and so, what we did was we tried to find somebody who sat kind of in the middle of the process who could give us our perspective. So, we went to Burlington Northern Santa Fe because they sit in a very fascinating spot in the middle. So, our guest today is uh, Chris Dano. Interesting by background, he spent his first full career at Walmart um, as a developer, built 30 million feet. So he really has got the back end, and now he's kind of in the middle in that hybrid. I'm going to give a disclaimer for Chris, so he doesn't have to give the disclaimer, which is he sits in a spot and he'll give some opinions on the other pieces and how they fit together. They're not statements of fact. They're not Burlington Northern. It's just asking somebody who's in the process every day if they can share with us. So with a longer introduction to paint the canvas than normal, um, Chris, welcome and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate that introduction there. And 
it's a privilege just to get to speak to everybody here. As I was saying, I've, I've been in seat now for about a month. I was leading the strategic projects here at BNSF where we're doing some internal self-developing, creating our own industrial sites for rail serve parks. Um, and then I just recently took over, in addition, the economic development part of our business for Burlington Northern. So I've been drinking water through a fire hose a little bit. If y'all were going to ask, Chris is also sitting in Dallas-Fort Worth. He's over on the Fort Worth side. We'll forgive him that. But he is actually <laughs> local. So it's great to have a local expert as a resource for us today. Um, and I'm going to give you a prompt, Chris, because I want to jump in because time goes fast. And this is really complicated. Supply chain unraveling. There's a lot of issues that we hear about. We see the pictures of the ports with all the containers. We hear about trucking. I just have a, I'm going to give you a prompt and let you work through it as you, kind of in pieces. How long does it take us to get the supply chain unraveled, big boy? Well, I, I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, I can give you my opinion and perspective. Um, I think it's going to take most of 2022. Um, I think it'll, It'll happen earlier in some segments of the business, but to get the whole backlog through the system, it may take all the next year. On the topic of the unraveling, I think it's just important. My, I'll give you my perspective on what happened, and it kind of leads to why it's going to take on a whole year to unravel it. If you think back to March of 2020, um, I may have the timelines a little bit off, but don't kill me with that. Um, so March of 2020, the whole world shut down. We all went home, workers went home, as many as that could and worked from home. We quarantined and we stopped eating out and we stopped traveling. So those demand items dropped off a cliff. And then we saw restaurants close, some went out of business, some tried to um, do takeout, different things they tried to adapt. Airlines canceled flights. I mean, we've all read the headlines of what happened with them. But those truly happened. The demand dropped off a cliff for those items. What also happened was the production overseas. All of those workers went home. They did the same thing we did. So if you think of not just China, it happened in Korea, Japan, Vietnam, all areas of China. That closed up too, and the factories stopped producing. The stock market tanked, right? March and April of 2020. So there was, a, there was a little bit of unrest across the board. So when that happened, the supply kind of dropped off a cliff. So nothing was being produced out of Asia. The shipping lines cut routes. They slowed down. They had to kind of tighten their belt as well based on what was happening. But here was the kicker that didn't change. The consumer went home and they did stop eating out and they stopped traveling. They did not stop buying. They kept purchasing goods. They bought, they bought goods online. You saw all the retailers. They saw big spikes on their online business. Um, certain categories spiked more than others. Any outdoor recreation, you couldn't find bicycles, camping gear, recreational things, boats. Boats were gone. The boat lots were empty. It's created this demand now for new and used boats, RVs, camping equipment, bicycles, everything. All those items spiked. Well, guess what? Those are a lot still made in China, or at least the parts are. So what happened was that demand continued to spike while the supply was at a halt. So, so you created that imbalance over a year ago. So now what happened? All those inventories eventually depleted. There was no production happening. They couldn't replenish it, even though people were ordering. 
the orders were going in, they weren't getting filled, the boats weren't running, so it created this huge gap. So now I'm going to roll the clock ahead to call it early 2021. Workers started returning to their jobs overseas and in the U.S. and Europe, etc. The factory started reopening, the ports started opening slowly. So as they had different COVID issues, they had to they had workers that could work, some that couldn't. They couldn't open at full capacity. So I'm going to say it opened slow in early 2021. So we've got this huge backlog of demand, and we can't fill it with supply because it, it hasn't opened yet overseas. It's slowly open. That continued to create this big backlog across the world. So as it opened, we started creating this surge of the shipping ramped up, production ramped up, and then the boats started leaving. Coming, I'm going to speak mainly towards the U.S. They started moving towards the West Coast. Then you get to call it spring of 2021. Product starts arriving on the West Coast, but we're just starting to open the ports. We're having worker shortages. Again, some COVID-related issues, people coming back to work. We're not open at 100% capacity, but we're slowly getting open. So the boats are showing up. We can't unload them fast enough. And that creates the backlog of boats that we're seeing out there. Call it spring of 2021 till the fall of 2021, where we are now. So now in November, I think we've seen the ports are running 24-7, which is probably 100% of their capacity. And it's not fast enough. And that's, what, that's why I say I don't know if it'll take all year to unravel this. It really depends on how fast that they can unload this backlog. I look at it from a railroad perspective. As soon as they unload the boat and put it on the train, we're getting the trains out of there. But the other bottleneck is, is if you think about, even if they get to 100% capacity, and I'm going to pick on LA a little bit because that's a big port, LA and Long Beach, if they can't ramp up much more than 100%. If you said you need to go to 200%, it can't happen out there. It's so jammed up in LA you can't just, I, I can't find 50 or 100 more acres to expand my operations. It just doesn't exist. So there are constraints with expanding the capacity out there. What we're doing is expanding it, what I'll call downstream. So as fast as they can unload boats on their 24 seven and running 100% of capacity, we're trying to clear the lines downstream. So clearing things out of like a Chicago or a Dallas, um, Memphis, the intermodal facilities. We're trying to get containers moved out of there as fast as possible to expand the capacity there. So as fast as we can load a train in LA, we're getting it to Chicago, Memphis, Alliance, the different intermodal hubs um, from a destination and trying to get it unloaded there. So it is gonna take some time. There's that backlog and you can't expand the LA capacity enough to make it happen that much faster. Okay, That's so, why I think it backlog. So we've got, Trucking, we've got rail, and you're in the rail business, but just kind of paint a little bit of the canvas about the trucking industry, because they aren't independent. They're, they're absolutely inseparable from each other. So if trucking is working and rail is not, we got a problem. If rail is working and trucking is not, we got a problem. Can you talk about trucking and talk about how they work together right now? Yeah, I mean, I think they're somewhat a little bit independent from the COVID and some of the port shutdowns that we saw, I felt like there was there was a shortage of truckers before COVID. It, it's been a tough occupation to continue to recruit people into. 
and the big companies are paying pretty good salaries in that industry and they kind of pick up the cream of the crop. I'm pretty close to some of the folks at Walmart and JB Hunt and they have huge recruiting campaigns out there for truck drivers. But short of that, the smaller guys, it's, it's a tough environment. There's, there is a shortage of truckers. There was before and there still is. Where that affects the supply chain is let's just say, let's just say we get all the trains unloaded in LA, we get them to Chicago or Alliance. I then need those containers picked up to empty my yard in Alliance. So if that piece, I call that the downstream end of it, if that slows down, my capacity at Alliance slows down. So it's, it's, I need those containers running out that gate as fast as fast or faster than I'm bringing them in. And that's where the trucker piece slows us down a little bit. And it, I don't know on the other, other from a retail's perspective how it's hitting, but that's where it's hitting us. Okay, so now let's, you said the word retail. Let me jump on that because that's just too fun not to jump on. We got some big dogs out there. We got Walmarts and Targets and Costco's and Amazon's. How are they dealing with it? Are they just saying to heck with it? We're going to go on our own at it. Are they? What's going on there? So, I, I've, we've talked and had a few meetings with a few of them. It does seem like the bigger players are trying to create their own. I'll call it a Plan B or a self-solve. So you're seeing Walmart do things like they're leasing their own ships. They're buying some of their own containers. They're trying to create ways to control their own destiny. So one, to get out of this mess, but also to have a plan B should something happen again. Many of them have dealt with, I would call it smaller log jams in the past. We've had strikes at the ports over years and they had to deal with some of the slowdowns, but they're trying to all create their plan B is my feeling and what I'm seeing with them. Let's jump I would think Walmart will continue. I think they'll lease ships. I bet you they keep that in place even after this. That was my question. It's, it's okay, so let's, I'm going to hop forward and backward. Let's pull out the crystal, crystal ball a year and a half from now. Let's just kind of get to 2023. And we have fluidity, whatever that means in 2023. Amazon, Walmart, some of the others have probably built out a partially integrated system in some way. Do they then divert back to the main superstructure that we historically know with like a BNSF? Or do they, do we start to see a, a changing system of logistics as you would guess it? My crystal ball would say they're going to keep it. They're going to keep their plan B in place. They may use it for some expedited freight to make sure they hit seasonal deadlines and things like that, but they're trying to control dates very closely. I think they'll keep it in place so they have something to go to in the event of an issue again. But at the same time, I think it'll help them with some of their seasonal moves and critical dated items. They'll be able to control that much better by keeping those things in place. There's sure. nothing like buying Christmas merchandise and it arrives 30 days late. You just cut your selling window down. That kills them. So um, five years ago, I bought a pair of socks on Amazon and it came to my house through UPS. And now I have an Amazon truck that shows up. So I'm going to use that dangerous word, the last mile or the, there's another word, last four miles, the medium piece, whatever they call that. So what you're saying is they might just continue to work backwards from their own airplanes, their own boats, their own containers, their own trucks all the way to the doorstep? 
it, it definitely seems like they're doing that. Amazon definitely has put a model in and they've made huge investments. They have their own planes. They have, you've seen the, the gray vans just like I have. They run through my neighborhood multiple times a day. Walmart's yeah. testing other venues. I think they'll each try and figure out what works for them, whether they have their own vans, whether they have UPS or FedEx. Um, I think they'll all find their own method. They all have to deliver this last mile. I do feel like the COVID shutdown moved the e-commerce model. It probably moved it ahead eight or 10 years. It ramped it up that much faster and is forcing retailers to adjust. So a lot of my colleagues, some on the phone, involved in the industrial sector and they were clustering their warehouses around the intermodal. So I'm gonna ask an infrastructure question. In the 10 or 15 year, future of main rail lines, it's hard to get a new main rail put through this country from just a pure right-of-way standpoint, not just the cost. That's the, if you could have the right-of-way, you would be able to figure out the cost. How do, how much slack is still in the rail system that exists? Can you add 10%? Can you add 100%? Where are y'all at? In, in, not just Burlington Northern, but the industry itself. So, so just from a rail perspective, I mean, we have, while we're probably not going to build another line all the way to the West Coast brand new, we can do what we call double track. We can come in and expand a right away. And instead of having one track, we may have two. And it, we can actually grow capacity quite a bit. In other areas, we might add sidings where we can get slower trains off a track, run the faster trains past them, and then put them back on the track. So there's things we're investing all the time in that infrastructure. It's different on different lanes, but we've got two main um, arteries going to the West because we have a Northern Transcon and then the Southern. And we're always trying to expand that route, either with sidings, double tracking and things like that. So we, we can expand that capacity quite a bit, but more importantly, we can expand those intermodal facilities to handle the output. That's where we're also investing. The more, the more space I can create, adding track, adding unloading there, I, I, I can get the trains there, but I need to unload them faster. So it's investing at both ends is my perspective. So, so um, I got an odd question for you. As just your average guy, I know what I know from reading the paper, watching the news, talking to you. What is the big issue with logistics right now that y'all are really focused on that isn't getting the top line news. We get a photo of the Port of LA with hundred container ships or 87 or whatever the number is, but there's something, there's probably one or two items that are really critical that we don't know about. So I don't even know to ask you, what am I not asking? What's out there? The biggest thing that we can do, and it, it won't happen in the near term, and that's why it's not a great solution for the problem that's at hand today, we need to expand capacity in the LA Long Beach area, not just BNSF, the whole logistics footprint. And that's gonna have to be an effort with the state, the government, everybody, because there's not raw land there. We're going to have to redevelop things and expand that capacity, whether it's the ports, the rail lines, the entire infrastructure for containers, it's all of the above. Um, we need that help to expand there. And if anybody's built anything in California, I mean, it takes four or five years or more. Entitlements take 
two to four years, we've got to be able to shorten that and move quicker to expand capacity on the ports. Um, there, I mean, we're not creating any more ports. The East Coast has its challenges. It has ports, but it has challenges and it's more costly. So they need to expand the West Coast ports and get more capacity there. It's not, I can, I can fix the downstream and Alliance. We can grow Chicago, Memphis. We can fix those pieces of it. But the in, in LA proper is more difficult. All right, so before I ask my next question, we have a number of people who have jumped on and I received the question. Can you please just double back for a second for those who weren't there at the beginning and tell everybody that you're BNSF and what your title is and what you do? So my name is Chris Danos. I'm the um, Assistant Vice President of Economic Development and Real Estate. So I've got two roles. I have a teams regionally that work and call it California, Phoenix, Chicago, strategically placed across the Western US. They work to help land customers on our network, um, find them rail serve sites, get rail access to a business, et cetera. And then I have the real estate side where we are doing some self-development of creating rail serve parks, um, logistic centers and logistic parks so that we have places to land customers um, that we know we can rail serve. Um, and then, then overall, just the real estate acquisition disposition process. We're always buying some right away, trading this or that um, on, on much smaller projects all over the network. So I have responsibility for both of those teams. Okay, so I've got a lot of my colleagues on the line here, and I'm going to kick it to them for questions in a minute, but I'm going to ask a very selfish question. A lot of my colleagues here um, are national or regional in their footprint. I'm just a Dallas guy. I really just care Dallas Fort Worth. That's all I care about. So selfishly, how does is there any silver lining with what's happening right now in logistics in the backlog, not just of the moment, but would that predict to the future? Like um, with COVID, you start to see an acceleration, some reloads on the office side coming to Dallas or some of the other major cities out of New York. What's coming to Dallas? What's our opportunity that comes out of this moment? I mean, I think it's like I was talking earlier. It's the we're we're part of the downstream end. Things coming directly off the West Coast ports. There is a whole lane that comes to Dallas, and then it distributes across the whole South Central U.S. It is a huge hub to service that part of the United States, and that's not changing. It's only growing. Dallas keeps getting bigger and bigger, and our capacity at Alliance keeps expanding. and I think the guys that are building those warehouses would tell you there's still demand and for, I mean, they keep specking million square foot warehouses out there and they keep filling them up. I think that continues long-term into the future. I mean, it, Dallas will continue to be that hub feeding the whole South Central US. Port of LA, Port of Long Beach, we've talked about them. There's Oakland, we also know Seattle. What about the Port of Houston? They just dredged the channel. They've been working in New Orleans and Houston. Are, are we going to see a shift from a heavy west to east flow from to a south to north flow in your strategic planning? How are y'all looking at that? We haven't yet. So I, I, it, it's more costly. It takes longer. And I just haven't seen it. We haven't really seen much shift there from an intermodal perspective. Um, it's still, we still see a lot of the, the fuel business going on down there. 
We see a lot of plastics business through the Port of Houston, but that's not new. I mean, it's historically been that way. We just haven't seen it yet on the intermodal side. So I, I guess we're waiting to see. I know before you, uh, I'm going to hand it off and get questions from my colleagues here, but I just want you to always remember if your position of strategic planning for BNSF, that Dallas-Fort Worth is the most important place in the galaxy. So <laughs> all of your strategic planning for BNSF needs to kind of come to Dallas first and go from here. Just saying, okay, let's make sure we get the, the goals right here. Got it. Um, we got a lot of folks on the phone. I want to open it up. Trey, you just unmuted yourself. Do you have a question? No, I was just suggesting maybe you ought to consider running for mayor or something. You're a pretty good advocate for our city. <laughs> yeah. Do we have any questions out there, please? Uh, Steve, do you have any questions from a retail consumer's perspective in real estate? I, I think you covered it. I think you covered it extremely well. Obviously, the retailers need inventory, and, and no matter how good their stores are without inventory, they're, they're sitting on the side. So between the internet and the lack of inventory in the stores, you've got some serious issues. And what are they saying to you about that, Steve, as it relates to the backlog? Are they blaming the backlog that Chris is talking about? Yeah, I, mean, I, think, the, the, I think everybody's looking to the backlog and saying that's, that's where the issue is. And... Certain retailers, like you mentioned, Walmart, Costco, the big boys have their own distribution channels in place and, and they're going to increase their advantage. The, the rest of the retail world is, is significantly handicapped. Scott Warman, can you hear me? Yeah, I, I, I want to pull that thread a little bit, though. Lieberman, I think this is something that's been documented, hasn't probably been talked about enough. This could be really damaging to the small retailer community. Um, where the large retailers will get stronger, the weak will get, the small will get weaker. And, you know, the fallout from that is just not a great outcome. Uh, they've been challenged already for a lot of different factors, but this is, they can't solve their logistics issue. They can't command, you know, the, they, they can't pay the prices that some of these logistic channels are requiring them to pay. And it's, I mean, any, are you seeing that on the ground floor yet? Are you seeing it with tenants? Well, we're, we're not seeing it yet, but it's, it's clearly, look, the retailers have been challenged from every direction. The internet being, being the greatest, obviously what happened with, COVID and, and the acceleration of, of online shopping has just been incredible. The retailers at the same time are, are great innovators. They, they've consistently dealt with challenges and change. And the ones who survive are gonna be the ones who best adapt. And, and nothing's gonna really change there. The small guys are gonna continue to have significant problems, but they're also nimble. They're able to provide other levels of service or find other ways to meet their customer. But at the end of the day, you have to have inventory. So. Yep. It's, it's, it's like you said, this could be a, this could be a one that's being super hard to, to find a workaround. So, Chris, I, I've got a question for you based on the conversation between Trey and Steve. Um, I have a colleague who used to manufacture in China. Now he's kind of diversifying and he makes home goods. I'll make a table, a chair, uh, a pot that you put a, a little plant in inside. And, and I'm going to make up the numbers and I'm going to let you correct me. I think he used to say it was $1,200 a container. And now it's 3000 Just for an order of magnitude, what's the price increase? And are you trying to ship empty containers reverse? Is that hard to get the containers back now across the Pacific to reload and come back? Well, I mean, we're moving them back as fast as we can unload them, yes. Um, the, the cost of a container has skyrocketed. Um, and that's, and that's going to flow into the cost of goods. That's going to be the offset of this. 
And that's the headline we're seeing now is inflation. It is spiking. And the thing that hasn't slowed down, it'll be interesting to see when it does, is the demand hasn't stopped. So prices are going up, but the consumer is still buying. I just watched all the big quarterly reports. Walmart and Home Depot, I think, were yesterday. Target and Lowe's came out this morning. All four of them had great third quarters. So in, in their world, demand and sales solves everything. So as long as they can continue to pass along some of these price increases, the demand's there, they're selling and they're growing their revenue, it's all good for them. Where it's going to hit a wall is when the demand slows or stops. And that's when I think we'll see some of the things I think, I think Trey, you mentioned, impact on a smaller company. Right now, demand is solving everything. Sales are solving everything. When it slows or stops, that's when the weaker ones are going to struggle. Okay, so I'm going to pull us back to something we talked about a minute ago. I've had separate conversations with Scott Rohrman and Lucy uh, separately, two uh, well-known local developers, kind of, I'm going to put them in the larger category in terms of success and, um, and breadth of what they're doing. And both of them said something interesting to me, which was, um, it's not just the cost of product. It isn't that my steel went from $10 to $16, it's I can't get it for 12 months. So again, let's go back to that. And I know we have a couple people who signed on. I wanna go back, because that's also the big issue. It isn't just the price, it's as Steve was saying, you gotta get it. If you don't get it to build the building or to put on the shelf, it's all relatively irrelevant. So for like the, the Scots and the Lucy's and the Michelle Wheelers who are uh, in Ray Washburn who are big builders, um, Rick Purdue's a big builder. Lindsay's designing them all. How long do you see that back on the product that they need to build buildings with? Again, how do you see that unwinding? I mean, I think it's it's very similar to the um, the, the consumer products. It, we've got to get through this backlog, um, and and that's the part that I don't have a feel for how long it's going to take on every specific commodity, but it, we're going to have to get through it. I'm experiencing the same thing. I've got a site we're developing right now. I need steel corrugated pipe just to put in the ground to get drainage in the ground. And we're sitting out there with all the equipment on the site and we can't do anything until the pipe shows up on site. So we're waiting and it's slowing everything down. Am I gonna not build it? No, we're gonna kill, we're gonna build it. It's just gonna take me longer. It's probably, it's gonna cost me more for the pipe than we thought, but I'm gonna have to wait. And I wish I knew how long it was gonna take because I'm sitting there idle right now. Well, Chris, I've got good news for you. I know, I, I know a guy at Burlington Northern I can hook you up with and he might be able to expedite your order for you. Um, Lucy, I saw you um, unmute yourself. Did you have a question? Well, I'd jump into the follow-up to talk about inflation and all this discussion about transitory inflation. And as you see things coming through and loosening up in a year or 14, 18 months, um, what's your sense on inflation? And I usually ask questions hinting at the answer that I'm interested in. And I happen to believe that it's not very transitory. Most of it's not. So tell me I'm wrong, please. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the, what we saw in the lumber industry is I think exactly what we're going to see across the rest of the industry. We saw this summer, we saw lumber prices go through the roof and spike, right? Now they've come back down some, but they didn't go back down to where they were. That's what I think we're gonna see happen across the rest of the industry. 
we will see the spike in inflation, just like the headlines are reading. But it's it, when it levels and dips back down, it's not coming back down to where it was. We will still have inflated pricing. And as long as the demand from the consumers there, they're going to pass it along. That's the key. Yeah. Okay. Um, open, open mic. Ray, um, Kim, does anybody have any? Scott Warman, do you have questions? I do have a question. Ross Perot Jr. spoke to our group not too long ago. And one of the things he said that I hadn't read anywhere is that clearly all the issues that you've spoken of, and thanks so much for articulating that for us uh, so well, but he indicated that some of the issue was in China, that the energy problem over there was causing them to have to reduce the hours in their factories to heat their homes, and that that was part of the supply issue. Do you have a comment on that? Are you seeing no, anything? No, I'm, I'm not as relative? I'm not as close to that piece of it. I apologize. Right. Um, it's no, kind of I, out of my wheelhouse, but it goes back to that's the we've got to solve it over there. There could still be some of that lagging happening in China, but the bigger problem now is those boats are at LA and we can't get them unloaded fast enough. If we could just take care of that part of it, we could solve a lot of the problems. Um, I'm not saying there's not other, some other underlying pieces, but right now there's last count there's 100 boats sitting offshore in LA. It just How long getting on that average out of the do they way. sit there? I don't even know what the average dwell time is now, but they were talking about seven, eight, 15 days on some cases, even longer. And what would be typical in a normal environment? I mean, it seems like in a normal environment, you might, you could pull up out there and just look out across the horizon. You might see two or three ships. They may wait a day or two, but they were in port then and getting unloaded. Now they're sitting out there for a week or two weeks. I think they're three or four weeks, and they're also charged more for every day that they're, you know, sitting there as they ought. So I've heard some of these uh, container prices being tenfold what they were beforehand. You know, again, this is a spike. Yes, um, it, I, I'm I sure there to, are. Yeah, and some of the steel things, I don't know how fast that stuff's to be solved. So I think we're going to have some of these things lingering way beyond just the port issues. But well, let me just interrupt and jump in with one other question. Uh, if you've got 100 boats out there, when when does the uh, port catch up? You know, how is the momentum on the, you know, supply and velocity there? Well, and so the, that's the part. The, the added complexity there, just to add to the point, Lucy, is the boats that are waiting here aren't sailing back to China to get refilled, right? So it's a perpetual issue of the cycle needs to balance itself out. and. There's not just another hundred boats they can just pull off the shelf and fill them in China and bring them over. So, I mean, the whole thing is back installed and it's, which is the point. I mean, you've heard 22, all of 23 type, you know, prognostications on some of this stuff for that to finally settle itself out. And I agree, the comment was made earlier or somewhere along the way, this is so supply driven. I mean, demand driven. If demand moderates because of pricing, some of this will solve itself, right? But we've had this, this acceleration of demand across almost every product type. It won't slow down until demand slows down. So it is both sides of the equation. It is. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that it's going to take all of 2022. It could be longer, but you're right. All those factors will play into it. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a guess at this point, but it's going to, I guess, a year at least. Um, Frank, I saw you unmuted yourself. Did you have a question or a comment? Question. I, I'm looking at, I'm hearing about China and hearing about everything supply coming from China. Do we see a movement to use some of our brainiacs and our smart technology in America to be, start producing supplies here? and not relying 
on the system. Is this gonna be a wake up call to a lot of our folks here who through technology and through innovation, we could start creating supply here that we could use and not rely on China. And, and they're also, as you know, buying a lot of the ports and they're gonna be controlling the ports. So I just wondering if this is a wake up call you know, in the bigger picture, and do you see any movement on the manufacturing side or production side, you know, changing to do it outside like the automobile industry did? Yeah, I mean, I, I hear a little bit about, they call it the onshoring, bringing some of that back. Um, we see a little bit of, a few things move into Mexico where they'll ship in components to Mexico and then assemble them in Mexico and then bring them into the United States. I think we'll see some more of that. I'm gonna go back to the labor issue. I think there's still a fear right now that there's such a labor shortage. Even if we built, if somebody built a factory or production in the US, how do they staff it? And then do they have a labor problem with the cost of labor at that point? But I hear a little bit, I, I, I can't say I hear a lot of it. Robotics. <laughs> yeah. one, more, one more quick question, Chris. Did your yaya call you Christo? Excuse me? Did you, I guess you're not, are you Greek? Chris Canna sounds great to me. You know, I have, um, I've not traced my heritage back that far, but I have been to Greece and the name is everywhere. So it has to eventually go back there. I just haven't traced it that far. As yeah, Mike will yeah. tell you, everything starts with the Greeks. So I'm just, yeah. 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 And, and Chris, just so you know, um, every single person, even if they're French, Mamezier gets asked if they were Greek or wanted to be Greek by Frank. <laughs> and now you know you've been indoctrinated into the family here at the Real Estate Council. Rick, did you have any questions? No, I, I would just say I'm I'm actually somewhat optimistic. I think capitalism is is kind of working its magic on all this. The the uh, they always they say the the solution to high prices is high prices and it's it's working when you talk about Amazon buying its own planes and uh, containers and Walmart doing all the same things. I mean that it is working that the problem has gone from China to the containers to the ports to the trains and we're slowly getting it all the way down to the consumer. So yeah, I agree it'll be most of 2022, but um, but it's actually, I, I see progress, I guess is what I'm saying. And Andrew Levy, you kind of have your ear to the ground with a lot of different food groups in real estate, just you and Trey both, uh, whether it's retail office, multifamily and industrial, obviously. Um, and unmute yourself, Andrew, is how is this landing on you and how are you hearing this in the real estate industry right now? Oh, a broad question. Um, look, I mean, we, we are, I mean, the, the themes are fairly consistent. They've been for the last six, 12 months. You know, we're, the wheel, it's wheels off good on industrial and multi-housing, obviously. There's definitely a search for yield now because of how compressed the yields have become in those product types. And you're also seeing, I think probably the biggest surprise to me is how good retail is doing right now. Uh, both from a tenant demand standpoint, as well as an investor demand. You know, we're seeing cap rates fall precipitously on, you know, not just grocery anchored, you know, beautiful centers in Highland Park and the best demographics, but on power centers in Baton Rouge and, and whatnot. And that's a function of one, the, the, the retailers that are there have survived. And two, to all the points that have been discussed here that the, you know, the, the consumer demand continues, I won't say unabated, but generally unabated. So, you know, right now the toughest office property, the property toughest property type is probably office because there's still so much uncertainty around 
demand and when people are coming back and whatnot. So um, I promised Chris when I was doing our pre-call that I would make it fun and on time. I don't know about the fun part, but we're going to take two more questions and I am going to keep it on time because that piece I can help. So we got two more questions. Um, if it's open mic, who would like to throw the first question out there? Scott, did you have any questions or Jim Barry or Michelle? Good morning. Um, I have a question. Lucy mentioned that there was the belief that maybe this wasn't transitory nature. Um, we've, we saw, you know, the whole toilet thing early on off through the system, et cetera. Any of this, um, if it's not transitory and we're having these supply constraints in terms of being get materials, at what point um, do people start shifting to other product types? In terms of the it's just that we're starting to see all capital towards two product types. If all of a sudden this is working itself out, when do people start allocating capital a little bit differently if they think that this is going to work itself to the system? I guess the question is, is it transitory or not? Yeah, and, and uh, Trey, well, I've heard you talk about this, so why don't you kind of jump on that, Trey, and then we'll let Chris follow you. Well, well, first of all, we probably need a whole other call on the discussion of inflation, transitory or not. We probably deserve another call on just the massive shifts going on in the logistics space, because we've touched on that in this call. There's some things like, you know, you get a Todd Platt or a Ross Perot on the call and talk about what's going on. You're talking about generational shifts in the way goods and services are going to be delivered. And we're, not, we're at the tip of that iceberg. We're not in the middle. We're literally at the very, very beginning of that. I, I just think those are massive topics that are going to affect us as consumers in our industry for years to come. So, Michelle, to your point, I, I, Andrew alluded to it. Capital's already moved, and it's not really an inflationary issue. It's a yield issue. Capital's moved in, in mass. I mean, we talked about capital rotation out of industrial and multifamily and really life sciences and a couple other specialty sectors because that's where the money's been for now almost 18 months. We're seeing meaningful, like 50, 75 basis point cap rate reductions in retail. And Andrew sort of alluded to that, but that's because capital flows. I mean, yes, fundamentals have proven, but it's also because of capital flows. Now, that doesn't mean capital is abating in multifamily and industrial. They still want as much of it as they can get. There's just too much capital. I mean, there's literally more capital in our sector than in the history of, of our, all of our careers. I mean, it's just, it's really an unprecedented amount of capital that's out there. So that's what sort of moves the needle. So. I think they're already, I mean, hospitality is resurrected in a meaningful way from a yield perspective and investor demand perspective. You know, I agree with Andrew on the office, except the office didn't, that people want, we're setting records. And we've set record pricing office level from a cap rate and per square foot perspective, if it's what the people want. So we've already seen a fairly wide, like, you know, reallocation of capital across all of our asset classes. I don't know, to me, that's not so much an inflation corollary as much as it is just a, a yield and ability you know, to get invested in the asset class in general. It is fascinating to me that we're having a conversation about unraveling supply chain disruption. 30 years ago, when I got in the business, we talked about logistics and we talked about capital in a very domestic measure. And today, whether we just talked about uh, capital or we talking about logistics, so much of the conversation is global. It's just fascinating how fast that total shift of the whole dialogue of real estate, whether it's the supply, the goods, the construction, the logistics, everything Chris has talked about, and even capital becomes such a global discussion. 
as opposed to a domestic discussion. Um, Chris, I have, I'm gonna keep this on schedule, Chris. We have one last question. Do you have a question for anybody here where we could answer a question for you that might answer something you're curious about because you do, my colleagues, you have some of the local experts here. I, got, I do have, a, it's kind of a question, but a statement as well. I'm, I'm looking to see, I'm starting to hear rumblings and see activity in the auto industry in Texas, as well as Dallas. There's a whole transformation it feels like going on as we start looking at EV cars. So the production of them, the batteries that go in them, all the components, we're starting to see a lot of activity in the auto industry, as well as in Texas and in Dallas. So I'm just wondering if ever anybody else is seeing or hearing that out there. Yeah, I mean, we, we know that we came, Fort Worth came in second on the west side of Fort Worth for the huge manufacturing plant for the electric trucks. Um, that was known kind of quietly in the market and been much more public over the recent time. Anybody have anything to add to that? Kim Butler just wants to lease her office building, so not Kim. Okay. Steve just wants to lease his retail. Okay, um, anybody have a la last call for questions before we, you know, Chris has been at his new job for, for a year, so he's um, probably still trying to get the fire hose taken care of. Um, anybody have any last question, last call here, folks, last question for Chris before we thank him very much for his time. Thanks, Chris. Um, Chris, we really do appreciate it. Obviously, this actually, the conversation affects every one of us in a different way, but just as much. And more than anything else, I know you worked on a national and semi-international program for most of your career. We're glad to have you in Fort Worth. We're glad to have you here. We'd love to see you and have you join us. And anything, anybody on this call, you're always welcome to call Linda or anybody else at the Real Estate Council for resources, anything we can do for you to pay back and to welcome you to me, it would be our pleasure. Really appreciate your time today. And with that, we've kept it to 50 minutes. And I would like to tell everybody, thank you for your time um, and happy Thanksgiving and um, happy holidays. And we have a few more events before the end of the year, they're winding down, but everybody have a great holiday and a great week. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Linda, any last words? Thank you. I think we're adjourned. I hope to see you all next year. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. That's it for today. I'd like to thank Chris Danos and the rest of the executives who joined our latest CRE Executive Roundtable on our deep dive into the supply chain issues impacting the economy. Remember to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media for the latest from around the organization. We've put links to everything in the show notes. Until next time, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.